2 Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to eventually end up. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, Amy will probably have a baby this week. Due date is in four days, so that's exciting. Uh, so we've got a lot going on. Had a fantastic dinner on Wednesday. Those of you that were able to make it, um, really enjoyed the night. Those of you that were not able to make it, just forget about you. It's all right. No. Uh, we, we missed you, and I uh, look forward to having you next time. We're going to try to make it a regular occurrence. I'm not going to commit to how often, but we want to do it often. Often enough to, to stay connected as a family, not so often as to burden you and make you feel like you're extremely busy and chasing your tail. So somewhere in the middle there, it's what we're shooting for. Um, we're doing a series of discussions right now we're going to call Foundations. Uh, what do foundations do? What are they for? Holds it up. Holds it up. Jesus talked about foundations. He said the man that builds his house on the sand, and then he compared it to the one that builds his house on the rock. And so when the Jesus made the comment, he said, when the storms come, not if, but when storms of life come, the one who builds on the sand will lose everything. But the one who builds on the rock, it'll continue to stand. That life will not fall. Um, same goes for a church. If we're going to build or see God build something with this group of people that we call Salt County, um, we need to ensure that we have a strong foundation. Um, foundations are, I want to clarify before we move into this, the foundations that we're talking about, and this goes for a house foundation or um, legitimate con- commercial foundations, They are not limitations for what can be built on top of it. It's not saying, this is your box, you must stay in it. You have complete freedom to build anything and everything on top of the foundation, but if there is not a solid and strong foundation, whatever you build, just, it won't last. It won't last. So I want us to remember as we move into this that this is not a limitation of what can be built. This is assurance that whatever gets built will remain, right? Um, So we don't go through these half a dozen foundations that we're going to go through over the next six weeks and say, well, we can't do this, we can't do that, we're limited in our freedom, we're limited in our creativity. That is not, I mean, if if, if we think about foundations like that, I want to correct our thinking before we move ahead because we want to identify these core foundations so that we have more freedom, more creativity, and more ability to see God build something really unique, right? So with that said, I'm going to try to keep this list short. I've narrowed down to six things. Uh, I have seen through experience that if if our list of foundations gets too long, unnecessarily long, unbiblically long, more preference-based foundations, then we do lose freedom, we do lose joy, we do lose our creativity. So I want us to identify what are the core foundational beliefs that we have to have as a church and then how do we build on top of those so we're keeping it short i got six now within that six there's an abundance of truth and abundance of goodness 
but I want to do everything I can to keep my preferences and your preferences out of our foundation. Because when our preferences become foundational, then we lose freedom for what can be built on top of it. Does that make sense? So I'm going to do my best to facilitate these conversations in a way that are just core biblical foundational beliefs that we need to hold on to in order to ensure that whatever is built stands. Okay, so here's my quick list. This morning we're going to deal with uh, Revelation, not the last book in the Bible, but how things are revealed to us. How do we know what we know? How do we know what truth is? How do we know what what has been revealed to us? We're also going to talk next week about uh, God himself. Then on week three, we're talking about sin, Jesus, and salvation. Week four is life after death. Week five is the sacraments. And week six is end times and Jesus' return. Okay? So we're going to have some foundational beliefs in each one of those areas that we as a church agree on to make sure that we don't build something that's flimsy, to make sure that we don't build something that falls apart. Um, So here we are. I got a illustration to start off with. Tyler may remember this one because I did when I was in youth ministry. I used to do a lot of really cheesy illustrations, and Tyler got sucked into this one, if I remember correctly. So we're going to repeat it in a much less embarrassing way. Um, anybody know what this is? Well, what is Dumbo? Dumbo's an elephant. Okay. You remember this one, Tyler? A loxodonte. Yeah, I, don't, I don't even remember where that name came from, but I said it really obnoxiously enough times that it stuck, and 10 years later I still say it. So, uh, There's an ancient Hindu parable uh, that has been used through Hinduism, Buddhism, and many times through ancient texts. Um, and the story goes like this. Here's, here's the brief story. There are six blind men who encounter an elephant. And the six blind men encounter the elephant, and they all approach different pieces of the elephant. And you have one blind man approaches the trunk, and he declares that an elephant is like a snake. An elephant is like a snake. And then one of the other blind men approaches the tusk and he declares that an elephant is like a spear. An elephant is like a spear. Then another one of the blind men approaches the leg and he touches it and he he assesses it and he declares that an elephant is like a tree. Yet one more approaches the elephant's side and he declares upon assessment that an elephant is like a wall. One more, that's one, two, three, four, five, touches the tail and he declares after assessing in his blindness that an elephant is like a rope. And then one more approaches and touches the ear and he says, no, an elephant is like a fan. All six blind men approach a different part of the elephant and they touch and they feel and they assess and they make the declaration, this is what an elephant is like. And in some of the ancient texts, it says these men come to blows in an argument. 
They are so passionate that they know what the elephant is like that they begin to attack each other to say, no, you're wrong, and I am right because of the part of the elephant that they have encountered. So I want to ask you, what conclusions could be drawn from this parable about life in our world? So this parable is meant to communicate a story, just like the parables of Jesus did, that he, de- he tells you of earthly realities through these stories, or heavenly realities through these stories called parables. This can be comparable to, that's where the word parable, comparable to the things that we know in everyday life. So think about this, and think about our everyday life and how people interact with one another, how we interact with this world. What can this story tell us? about life and our world. There you go. And what's the word for believing that our perspective is truth? Hmm? Opinion? There's also a relativism. Relativism. It's all relative, that everybody has their own truth. That the man who encountered, to him, the world, the elephant really is like a wall. And that's true for him. But what's true for me is, no, the elephant is like a rope. So we can can deduce from this that relativism is an option in this world. That we're all experiencing the same world, we're all experiencing the same reality, but we all experience it in a different way. So therefore we say, you know what, I can't argue with Mike. I'm going to let Mike's view of the world be true, and then let Tony's view of the world be true as well. It's all based on perspective, it's all relative to who you are and your experience. Right? So that becomes an option through this story. What else do we notice in this story that becomes true in our world or life, or an option in our world and life. There's also a, if this is an option, or if this is, then, then what's the opposite side of that coin? If everybody experiences their own thing, and your own reality is your own reality, and your own reality is your own reality, then what, what do we deduce out of that, but that there is no, what? No absolutes. If relativism is true, then there are no absolutes, right? So that's, that's one of the things that this story is telling us. What else is this story com- potentially telling us? I'm going to stretch your brain for a minute this morning, and then I'm going to make it really simple before you leave. How about that? I promise. Okay. Everybody's wrong. That's an option. Everybody is wrong. And let me, I'm going to say something, Sam. You tell me if this is what you mean. If everybody's wrong, then absolute becomes unknowable. Whether it exists or not, everybody's assessment of truth is wrong. So therefore, you could declare that whatever the truth is, is, is not knowable. Where are you going then? Well, I was going that it knows that there's no... 
So it, everybody's wrong. So two options are absolute is knowable, yet no one knows, or absolute truth is not whoa, knowable. I get so wrapped up in putting letters in the wrong spaces when I try to write really quick. I just, it's like I abbreviate things that aren't abbreviations. I apologize. Or it could be that everybody that's talking just doesn't know. Maybe it is knowable, but the ones that are arguing don't actually know, right? I mean, it's just, what else could we take away from our story here? What can we say about personal experience? My personal experience is limited. Right? What I've experienced is only partial. It's, I've, I've not, if I'm one of the blind men, I've not experienced the whole elephant. So I just, I can come humbly away from the elephant and say, you know what? What I've experienced is, is maybe true partially, but I have not experienced everything. Right? So personal experience is limited. If I'm the blind man that interacts with the trunk, then I, and I see this big picture, then how does that change the way I interact with the blind man that came across the leg? If I understand all these things, there is a bigger picture. I've only encountered the trunk. Instead of arguing with them, how might it change the way we interact? You talk. You might listen. You might encounter the other one with more humility and less arguing. Yeah, because he can't see it, what? You're, 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 so any one of these men, if you understand that you're trying to evaluate what is unseen based on how it feels, is that a trustworthy assessment of assessing the unseen? Apparently not. If the, if the story was any, like, if there was any reality in this story whatsoever, then you would declare... Feelings are not a good way to assess truth. They're just not. Feelings are sometimes deceptive. Right? Um, that was actually on my list. Reality cannot be defined by a feeling. Uh, disputes are caused by know-it-alls who know nothing. Like if the six men begin to argue, you're like, you're all arguing like you know something, but in the end, none of you know anything. 
And if you're going to watch a group of men argue based on what they think they know, but if you're standing back and you see the whole picture, you're like, y'all are fighting because you think you know everything and none of you really know anything. That's why you're fighting. Uh, Without revelation from a greater perspective, I'm saying the truth is unknowable. If I'm the man at the trunk and I'm assessing the best I can, unless there is some sort of way to back up and to see everything, then I'm out of luck. Because even evaluate, even if in my best humility I go to the other five men and say, hey, what'd you experience? We just said that feelings are not a good way to assess reality. So even then we're going to be skewed in our collective view because it's based upon your feelings. And your feelings are relative to you. And I could feel something completely different when I interact with that. Right. The elephant, here's the final one that I have. The elephant exists if, if this, based on this story, I could say that the elephant does exist and we could pursue correct knowledge of him. Based on this story, the elephant does exist. Just because my feelings about him are in error, just because our collective view is in error, just because we have thought about him in error, doesn't mean that he doesn't exist and that we cannot still pursue correct knowledge of him. He does exist. The elephant is here. And we still have the ability to come to a correct view. I want to give you a we believe statement. So each week, if I remember, I'm going to give you a we believe statement. Y'all know some of times I'm forgetful, so I may forget. But here's your statement of the day. We believe We believe that God has revealed and preserved the big picture concerning Himself, humanity, and life in this world and beyond in the Bible. We believe that God has revealed and preserved the big picture concerning himself, humanity, and life in this world and beyond in the Bible. Okay? That's what we as a church declare to believe. So let me say this. If you don't believe that, that does not exclude you from being a part of the church, but you coming into the church recognize that we as a church are building something based upon that reality. Right? Because I believe that we're creating an environment where people who don't necessarily 
believe that coming in have freedom to come in and evaluate and question that. Okay? It doesn't change what we're building, but it allows you to come into the building and assess that as a possibility. We want to build a place that has the freedom for anybody and everybody to come in and evaluate those things, whether they believe them or not. Okay? But what we're building is based upon that. And that's really where it starts. I can't tell you about anything else until we have declared that to be our foundation number one. Read with me 2 Timothy. I got it on here if you don't have one in your... And I actually want to read this. This is a different version if it made it to Stephen. This is a different version than what I usually read out of. So if I did well, he will have it. There it is. This is the number one verse in my biblical studies education that I had to memorize in every class that we went through. Brought this one back up. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what is right. Uh, Another version uh, would declare that all Scripture is God-breathed. This one says inspired by God, but other ones would vocabulary. All Scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful. It's profitable for telling you what is true, making us realize what's wrong, corrects us when we're wrong, and teaches us to do what is right. Two ideas I want us to pull out of that verse this morning as we consider our we believe statement. Idea number one, all scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. Everything in this book has been inspired or breathed out very intentionally by God himself. So that we could have it and read it and know it. Um, two verses that I want to read to you. Second Peter 1.21 says that no prophecy ever came by the will of man. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when the prophets who wrote this the things that have been fulfilled time after time after time after time, the things that they declared to be true and then God proved to be true, they didn't think it up. They didn't muster it up. They didn't say what was a good idea, but Peter is declaring that the Holy Spirit picked them up and carried them into speaking this, commanded them to speak this. They were carried by the Holy Spirit and they wrote what the Holy Spirit told them to write when they wrote their prophecies. Okay. Second one is Romans 15, verses 25 and 26, where Paul says the gospel, which is now revealed and made known through the prophetic scriptures, according to the command of the eternal God. So the gospel revealed to us in the scriptures, Paul says, is according to what God commanded, the eternal God commanded to be written, to be declared. All scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God. The men who wrote were carried by the Spirit to write what they wrote. And the gospel revealed to us 
has been done so according to the command of our eternal God. So what does that mean? The Bible is not another blind man's view of the elephant. If that's true, then the Scriptures, as we have it, are not another blind man trying to tell you what the elephant looks like. But it's actually the elephant revealing himself to the blind man completely. We know God's not an elephant, but I'm just sticking with the, the illustration. It's not men feeling their way through this world saying, I think God is like this. I think God is like that. I believe the world is like this. I believe the world is like that. No, it's the God who created the world declaring to you who He is and what He's like. If this is true, then that's the reality that we deal with in the Scriptures. Okay? So I'm going to stop right there for a second. And I, I... I'll lay this out there so that you can give legitimate questions or concerns. What questions or concerns does this concept present to you? Right? If this is true, or according to what we've just read, what questions or concerns does that present? Anybody? I'd say how we experience God, each one individually is different, you know, based on what you're saying. It's the same God, but how we experience that same God is different. There's an interesting twist there because what you just said is true, yes, that Mike talked about experiencing God's grace, experiencing God's redirection and things like that when you told your story. Um, but then when, when Shelly gets up and tells her story, it's like, whoa, we just have a whole other facet of God that communicates through each one of our stories and each one of our past. So in a way, that's true, but there's an interesting reality. The, the, the parable that we just shared comes from a Hindu-Buddhism past, and they would say something that sounds very similar but means something completely different. It's a pluralistic view that says, you know what, what you've experienced is your God, what I've experienced is my God. They do not interrupt with each other. We're all experiencing God in a different form, in a different way. And when you get to that, that becomes completely contradictory to scriptures, to the Bible. Um, So yes, I've experienced different facets of God throughout my life. And even in this season compared to that season, I'm experiencing God's grace, God's judgment, His correction, His provisions, His this, His that. But it all comes from the same reality of God. But the slippery slope that we live in is saying, you know what, Tony? If God's more like a brother to you and less like a king, then that's just, that's good for you. That's your God, you know? And then you declare, God is this based upon what I've experienced. So there's a slippery slope where it's like different facets of who God is or declaring that God is different according to what you've experienced. I'm going to write my own book based upon what I've experienced, which is where the Hindu belief of... It's funny because when we baptize AJ on Easter, 
AJ came out of a Hindu home and, and, and one of the hardest things for him to wrap his brain around originally was, he's like, yeah, Jesus, yeah, that's cool. Just throw him in the pile. It's just, he doesn't, when, when we first met AJ, he would say that Jesus doesn't interrupt my view of God. He's just another way to experience God. Right? And that would be completely contradictory to the story that the Bible tells. Now, within Jesus, there's a lot of characteristics and a lot of facets, and I experience those at different seasons and through different phases of life. Same Jesus, one Jesus, one reality, experienced differently throughout my life. Not God revealed in a different person, God revealed in a different this or that. So I completely understand what you're saying, but then there's... There's a, tra- there's a trail that goes off of that thought process for some people too. So, if all scripture is God-breathed or God-inspired, carried by the Holy Spirit, people spoke these things, God commanded and they wrote them, what questions or thoughts or concerns does that present for us? There's two immediate responses that I think of based on that. Number one, yes, it did come through men. So we should anticipate that each author has their own personality coming through, and we see that. We see when Paul writes versus when Peter writes versus when John writes, you can tell that's different authors because they write uniquely different. Their personalities come through different. So it doesn't eliminate the author from the text, right? So when, when we read... It's like you almost feel what Paul's like. When you read through John, you almost feel what John's like. Read, the, read John, 1 John, and you're like, that dude is direct, cut and dry, to the point. And then you read when Paul writes, and you're like, that dude is theological, philosophical, big thinker. Completely different than John. John's like, if you do this and you say this, you're a liar. <laughs> You say you love God, but you don't love your brother, you're a liar. And then Paul's like, love is patient, love is kind, doesn't envy, it does not boast. It's like the same statement, but the authors are different. So number one, there is unique characteristics in the writing from the authors. But number two, how do we know, three things, don't argue with a man that wants to argue. You're just another blind man at the elephant fighting over what the elephant's like. That's not productive. Not productive at all. If somebody wants to argue about the elephant, if somebody wants to argue about who God is, just don't argue. Just say, hey, (laughs) sorry, bro. Not going to get caught up with that. Wasted too many days of my life trying to argue somebody into a correct view of God. It's never worked. 
never works, so I just don't do it. Um, but the other thing I was going to say is, how do, we, how do we know that this, which has different personalities coming through through the different authors, how do we know that this is like legit? One of the ways is what Peter said. He said, no prophecy has ever found its original intent from the will of man, but it was spoken as the Holy Spirit carried them. He says the prophecies that we know are from God are the ones that come to be a reality. And that's one of the ways when I was a young believer finally studying this for myself, that is one of the the most encouraging realities of the Bible that I've ever encountered. It's like when I read the thousands of prophecies that when, when men of God said, this is what God has said is going to happen. And then it happens. It's like, you know that didn't come from man. You know that came from God. Why? Because God did it after he said he would do it. So um, all the prophecies about the coming Christ, that you, O Bethlehem, though you are small, you will be greatest, because from you will come one. And And then where is Jesus born? In the city of Bethlehem. And and he speaks of the virgin who will give birth to the Messiah. And what do we have in the Gospels but Luke and Matthew telling us about Mary before her marriage as a virgin giving birth. And so many after prophecy after prophecy after prophecy that was declared in the Scriptures has been fulfilled. Read Isaiah chapter 53. And Jews and non-believers have tried to explain away Isaiah 53 forever. But when you just read it, you're like, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. I have to explain it away through illogical thinking to conclude that that's anything other than Jesus. So it's the prophecies, exactly what Peter says when he says that no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along. How do I know the scripture to be an accurate portrayal of who God is and who we are, one of the greatest ways is the prophetic fulfillments that we find all over the Bible. Can't argue with that. He will, but he can't. Right? He will. And you got to know he will, so for that reason, don't argue. Don't waste your time with people that just want to argue about who God is. Hearts are too hard to want to know who God is. I just want to win. I just want to win. So, what other questions, concerns, thoughts does this present? All scripture, God breathed through men. Anything? I wanted to leave time here because everything else we're going to talk about, talk about is based upon this. And I don't just mean today. I mean everything we're going to talk about through the existence of our church is based upon this being true. Every move we're going to make as a church is based upon this being true. Every decision we're going to make is based upon this being true. Everything we're going to teach is based upon this being true. Okay. So if all scripture is God-breathed, why on earth did God breathe Leviticus? Right? Couldn't he have just like held his breath for a little while? Um, 
So I'm, I'm not going to, I will admit, I tried to say that as a negative sin, let me say that as a positive sin. I will admit that I have wrestled with some of the Old Testament writings and how is that useful? <laughs> Come on, Jesus, how is that useful? Because it seems completely irrelevant. I'll admit, I've gone through that train of thought. Um, how would I respond to that? There's, there's a couple things. Number one, remember that all Scripture is not only useful, but it's contextual. Especially the Old Testament in that context. When, when God chose Abraham and he said, out of you I'm going to make a nation, that nation became Israel. And then for the whole entire Old Testament, we're tracing the history and the movement of this nation called Israel. Now, the only reason we trace their history and their movement is because he promised that all nations in the world would be blessed through Israel by the person of Jesus. So we follow them all these years for one purpose. It's to get to Jesus. But as we follow them and we read them and we read about all their rules and their regulations and don't eat shrimp, don't mark yourself for the dead, uh, don't do this, don't do that. And there's, there's hundreds of rules and regulations that come along with it. If we read them in context, they would make a lot of sense. Number one, a lot of the rules that God gave to Israel as they went into the, the promised land was to set them apart from the people who were caught in idolatry and false worship and, 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 and every other thing that was steering them away from the person of God. So he said, when you go in there, don't do what they're doing because it's going to cause you to forget about me. You're going to begin to worship their gods. You're going to begin to marry their wives. You're going to begin to intermingle with them and you're not going to have any identity from me whatsoever in a very short time. So a lot of the rules, the do's and don'ts that God gave them were for that context and that purpose and to keep them set apart and different from the nations that they were going to live among. Okay? I, I think the command to not eat shrimp is completely irrelevant to us. It has no leaning whatsoever to or away from God in our context. And that's one of the ones that people argue about. I'm like, but there was, it, it was steering them in that context. It was intentional. And even some of the things, even Tyler and I have talked about this the other day at work. It's like some of the things in the New Testament are also contextual. And until we understand the context that those commands were giving, we don't understand why the commands were giving. The why is still relevant for us. Every time, the why is still relevant for us, but sometimes the context has changed, and that's why we always start with a why. Why did God tell them not to do this? It was to protect them, to preserve them, to keep them. Oh, well, that why is still true, but some of the context has changed, so how do we apply it in our context? Does that make sense? So, it's hard. Because there's some crazy stuff in that Old Testament, especially Leviticus. Read it. <laughs> you'll make it halfway through, and then you'll be like, dude, I quit. It's because the context means everything. So, The why never changes. But how we apply it in our modern day, I think, 
I'm not saying we disregard. Don't, don't, don't hear me say that we just throw out parts of it because all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is useful. But if I just say, you know what? God loves me because I didn't eat shrimp at lunch. You've missed the why. You've missed the intent for which God was speaking to those people. Right? So, anything else before we jump on? Sam, if you were at a, uh, an auction, I would have I would have gave you the highest bid right there because you scratched your head. This one's free of charge, chasing a rabbit. One of the arguments that, along that lines, one of the arguments that if, if you encounter somebody that wants to argue, they're going to say, well, what about all the contradictions in the Bible? What about this? When it disagrees with itself and, and it says one thing, then it says another thing. Um, I've always been told that if somebody wants to argue about that, say, well, what contradictions are you talking about? They usually don't have any. <laughs> Because that's just an argument that's been passed down for generations. It, it doesn't have any validity. It's just an argument that somebody heard an argument and nobody can answer it, so they just repeat it again and again. So if somebody wants to argue with you, number one, don't argue. But if they throw that argument out, ask them to show you the contradictions that they're talking about and then discuss them logically. Because they, they probably won't have any contradictions. It's just an argument that... We pass down, and, and, and people become very hard against the Bible because of illogical arguments that they've heard other people present in arguing, and so they get hard and hard and hard against believing anything the Scripture says because somebody said something that sounded really sharp, and nobody else had an answer for it. Um, so I ask them, say, "Well, which ones are you talking about? Let's look at them." So, second thing this says. All Scripture is inspired by God or God breathed. Second thing it says is all Scripture is useful. It's useful. Um, the Bible is useful. I mean, that's not a profound statement, but I think it's a profound statement. The Bible is useful. It's not a historical book that's in its context. It has no purpose for us today. It doesn't matter. It's dry. It's boring. It's not any of that. No, it says the Bible is useful. It's useful for four things that he says. Useful for teaching what is true. Okay? Shows you the elephant. This is what an elephant is. And this is a process. I just noticed this process this week. I've never noticed this before. Number, number one, teaching what is true. And if it teaches what is true, it therefore reveals what is wrong. That's not two separate things. That's two sides of the same thing. When I show you what's true, it's like, oh, it's not a snake at all. That was a trunk. 
right? So it teaches you what is true, therefore revealing what is wrong. And if it reveals what is wrong, that becomes personal and it corrects me when I'm wrong. And it doesn't leave in correction. Joe, you're wrong. Feel bad about it. That's not what it does, but it actually then takes another step and leads me in what is right. That, sir, is how the Bible is useful. It shows you what is true, therefore revealing what is wrong, showing you where you're wrong, and then taking the next step and leading you into what is right. Okay? That's how the Bible is useful. That's the purpose that we engage with it. That's why we read it. That's why we move into it. Um, Let me ask you a question. If we want to set this book aside and we want to find out what is true, what other resources might we encounter? What other resources might we engage with? If we're going to set this, this is not breathed by God, true, revealing. Our, our we believe statement is not true. God has not revealed or preserved anything in this. Where am I going to go? What? Okay. Other resources I begin to trust in is experience. What else? Other people? What else? That is other people. That's actually what came to mind. I'm going to go to Wikipedia. Every time you go to WebMD, you walk away thinking you're dying. I've got all those symptoms. I have cancer. No, you have allergies. Ah, yeah. So, what, what's interesting thing, when we were in youth ministry, I did a poll before I started a discussion series there. I did a poll and I asked them, um, it was just kind of one of these absolute truth, does it exist, does it not exist, who, de- who defines what's true, who determines what's true. Interestingly enough, most of our students, a, 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 a majority of our students believed that truth was dependent upon where and when you live. I mean, that was a strong belief in our group, that that if you live in America, this is true. It's right to do this, and it's wrong to do that. But if I live in Kenya, then I live by a completely different set of rules according to what that government has determined is right or wrong. I'm like, so you, you really believe that there is no... Like if I go to a different continent, I need to live by a different reality. Like, yes, it may be wrong to kill here, but it may be okay there. It may be wrong to rape here, but it may be okay there. It's acceptable. The law of the land, when and where you live, determines what's good and what's wrong. And so that, that's, that's a real resource that's being utilized right there with Wikipedia. So anything else? If we set this book down, what other resources do we have? 
along with Wikipedia, belongs Google, right? Contents. Yeah. That inner voice, not conscience. Because I don't know how to... I'm going to try it. Con-science. Why do we not pronounce it con-science? That way I know how to spell it. <laughs> conscience. The conscience tells me. That's a resource I go to to figure out what is true, what is wrong, am I wrong, how can I be right? Go with the conscience. Okay. Huh? It's against science. I'm sure there's an etymology we could trace there, and uh, feelings, nothing more than feelings, right? Feelings, and I hope that some of you have been paying attention. And through the elephant, we have already de determined that feelings are not a good judge of truth. So I hope. So let's just look at this. If, I mean, this is a legit list. This is what we do. And I'm going to say that a lot of us that believe in this still go by that. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Because I just told you what's true. No. <laughs> So we do that, and everybody does that. And if you don't have that, then that's what you do. Experience. What have I experienced? And it's funny, like me and Mark on our runs, we had good talks about that. It's like, well, what if I'm born here, and, and I've experienced this, and then those other people born there, they didn't experience what I experienced. So maybe, maybe the elephant is different for them. Well, if it's true, it's true no matter what I've experienced, right? So I don't know if that's a good, unless all things are relative, right? But then other people, let's, let's ask other people, what have they experienced? Well, that starts arguments, and that's blind leading the blind. We're all going to fall into a pit, Jesus says. Law of the land, we talked about it. Google is just more other people. Conscience. Conscience. Maybe God placed in me this compass, that reveals all good things. Follow your heart. That's what we say. It's not what I say. It's what other people say. And actually, it was that stinking book that your wife gave me. I think either he tapped into that or he created that in that book because he says to follow your heart. Now, here's the problem. Unless I open this up, that's not a problem. Unless my heart leads me astray and then my whole life falls apart because I followed my heart and that was a bad elephant. But when I open this, he says the heart is deceitful and it's wicked above everything else. It's a liar. It's been corrupted. So, follow your heart. Initially, that sounds good. But then I open this up and he says, no, don't follow your heart. The heart's a liar. That's a bad thing to do. That's wrong. Instead, you should follow the Spirit. Trust in Jesus. He'll give you the Spirit. 
Follow the Spirit and follow my word. I've already revealed it. Walk in the truth like it's light. The word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path that I may stumble, but I will never fall when I walk in the light. Now, if you walk according to your heart, you're walking in darkness and you're going to bust your head open. Right? It's a light unto my path. It's going to lead me in what is right. Now, when you put light in your path, sometimes you're like, go in the wrong way. I thought this was a good path, but now we lit it up and this is a little treacherous. It's never too late to turn around, right? But only if you have light. So compare those sources right here to this statement right here. We're closing with this. Look at these. Experience other people, law of the land, Google conscious feelings. Compare that to what I'm about to read to you in Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is living and effective sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is sharper than any sword. It will cut and divide even to your heart, the intentions of your heart. It will reveal those. It's that sharp. Compare that to this. I understand why some people would choose to stay with Google while they choose to ask Siri instead of ask the Word of God. I get it. Because Siri does not reveal the intent of my heart. It stays on the surface. It's safe. I'm not going to rock my boat. I'm not going to change anything. But, Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true, and He is a shield. He is a shield to all to come, all who come to Him for protection. Every word of God proves true. And it will divide even soul and spirit, reveal the intent of your heart, but not in a negative way. In a way that will steer you into safety to, to go to Him for protection and He will be a shield to all who come to Him. He will protect you. He will be a refuge. When we read that God's Word is sharp and it divides and it reveals, you're like, screw that, dude. I'm just going to go to Google today. Google is not a shield. Somebody else's experience will never preserve or protect you in times of trouble. Every word of God proves true. And He is a shield to all to come to Him for protection. I don't believe the word of God could limit... I don't believe... Believing what we just said, this statement right here will not limit what can be built in this family. It won't limit that. We have all the creativity, all your giftings, all your resources, everything come together, and whatever God wants to form on top of this foundation is limitless. This, this statement right here will not box us in. It'll make sure that whatever we build from this day forward will last, though.
if Google is our truth, if experience, if feelings, if any of those things are our truth, this thing's gone any day. Something's going to blow through. We're going to cease to exist and we're going to have no lasting impact in this town. But if the word of God proves true and he is a shield to all who come to him, this thing's going to last. The impact that we have is going to last. The purpose for which we are here is going to last. This is our number one foundational truth which all other truths come from. Once again, you don't have to be eye to eye with me today, but I'm going to ask you to engage in this. I'm going to ask you to press into this. Stop searching Google and start searching the Scriptures. Test and see that the Lord is good. Right? I'm going to ask you to to switch your focus and find out if He is true or if He's not. Give it a shot. This is a place to do that in safety and freedom without any condemnation or judgment coming from others. This is a safe place where all people can come and consider this truth. For the Word of God is living and effective, sharper than any double-edged sword, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why can it do that? Because all Scripture is God-breathed and useful. It's useful. Teaching what's true, revealing what's wrong, correcting me when I'm wrong, and leading me in what is right. Questions, comments, concerns, arguments... Anybody got anything to close us out? You're not going to go anywhere else where they're going to ask you that. You're going to walk out scratching your head thinking about something. Now I'm giving you a chance to vocalize what you're thinking about. So... Based on this, next week we're going to talk, discuss concerning the person of God. One one God revealed in the Scriptures. One God revealed in the Scriptures. Who has He revealed Himself to be? That's where we go next week.